Welcome to Corporate Cornucopia, the podcast that's overflowing with business insights, entrepreneurial tips, and stories from the front lines of today's economic landscape. From the studios of the Kyrville Chamber of Commerce, I'm Mark Heiberger, your host. And I'm Noel Fenderson, your co-host. Today, we're talking to Eric Barnes, CEO of The Daily Memphian, an online daily news source that launched in 2018. He is also the host of Behind the Headlines on Memphis's PBS station, founder of the Sidebar podcast, and author of four novels. Years ago, Eric graduated with a Master's of Fine Arts from Columbia University and a BA from Connecticut College. And even before that, he drove a forklift in Washington, worked construction on Puget Sound, and froze fish in a warehouse outside Anchorage, Alaska. Eric, thanks for joining yeah. us at the at the Kyrable Chamber uh, Corporate Cornucopia Podcast. <laughs> what, what do you think of that name? <laughs> I think that's a, a wonderful name. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for yeah. coming all the way out to here to to talk with us today. Um, right off the top, uh, when when did being a, a construction worker in the Pacific Northwest? Um, Working in a, a, a warehouse, a frozen fish warehouse in Alaska, become prerequisites to being a, a mega uh, <laughs> multimedia CEO. How did that happen? I'm gonna bicker with the mega multimedia CEO, but um, the, you know the, the construction thing was that um, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. It was a big blue collar. Is still it's kind of hipstery now, but it's big blue collar city. And my parents owned a construction company, and I'd work there. It was not, it was a very much a family affair. It was not a choice, but you had to work uh, to help get things done. Um, and the Alaska thing was actually in the Northwest is more common than it might seem that it's just a great way to go make money and have a bit of an adventure and, and, um, they just need seasonal work. And so I lived in a tent and worked and it was, it was just a good way to make money. And, um, but the connection probably to media is that I go from there to college out in Connecticut. I really want to just write books and write short stories and and I do do that. But I had student loans when I graduated and I had to get a job. And the only thing I was really qualified to do that might pay me a little bit of money to cover my student loans was to be a reporter. And what I found over time is that I liked, I, I like the journalism. I like the business side of publishing. I just, I love publishing. And to me, it's very much comes back to the construction thing that you make something. Mm -hmm. So back when we did everything in print, you would put a, daily paper out or a one-time magazine or a book. I mean, I've been at all kinds of different <clears throat> publishing and I liked the idea of making something. And I like the idea that all these people come together to make it. And I, it, it clicked for me. I mean, my stepbrother, um, one time who's in construction still was messing with me saying, when are you going to come back to, you know, to come and get a real job where you make something? I said, well, you know, and it was when it clicked for me. I was like, this is 20 years ago. I go, I, I do make stuff. We, the work I do, we make stuff. We make magazines, we make books, we make websites. And he kind of had to, he was like, well, okay, fair. <laughs> you know? So I, I think there is that kind of connection. One, it was just, again, family work and summer jobs, but also uh, it, it, all of making something is kind of what I've enjoyed. Where did the, the root of, enjoying writing and pursuing writing, you know, where did you sort of realize that that was something you really enjoyed and wanted to pursue? I think I, I had enjoyed it in, you know, in high school and I worked on the yearbook and the, you know, the high school paper. And I, 
you know, whenever there was sort of a short story class, I kind of like that. And I had always loved to read and, and I enjoyed English classes. I also enjoyed math classes and science classes and all that. I, I sort of just secretly really liked school. And, um, um, I didn't really think of writing as something you could really do though, until I was in college. And there was, a um, some of us at the table remember when college, um, uh, catalogs were printed and you would turn pages and you'd go through and there's a short story class you could take in your sophomore year. And so I applied to get in there and I got in and suddenly I was at a table with a woman who was an actual writer, like a professional writer. She wrote novels, she wrote short stories, she wrote some journalism, she taught classes and Blanche McCrary Boyd and kid in Tacoma working in construction. I'd never met a writer in my whole life. I, I didn't know you could do wow. that. I didn't, yeah. I'd never met a reporter. I, I'd never, none of this seemed like things you could do. So suddenly that kind of far-fetched notion, notion of, uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor or Ernest Hemingway was, it, here's this writer sitting down the, you know, 10 feet from me. And, um, that's when I thought I wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, write fiction, which I have done, but again, it's a terrible business. So, you know, you really can't just pay back your student loans or, you know, raise a kid on that. But, um, but I've, I've managed to do it. And then segue that also into a, into a day job, quote unquote, that uh, I like. Well, it's so impressive. I mean, four novels, I mean, yeah. was the construction industry, did that inspire your novels or? Uh, one of the books is about a kid who goes to, um, among other things, lives in Tacoma and goes to Alaska and works in a fish yeah. plant. If you read the book, it's not me. It's a pretty horrific book about some really awful people. It is fiction. It is not real. I always have to do a big caveat on that. I did grow up with people like that, though. And yeah. so I think, you know, there's a reason I, I, you know, the joke is there's a reason I live 2,000 miles from home. Um it just was a very different time up there and a different time right. of life. And so, so that did. And then I wrote a, one of the books about a company built on a lie um, that is kind of vaguely inspired by the time I spent in New York working at various companies. I was there about five years. And then the last two have been about essentially about a city that's been abandoned and the people who choose to live there and rebuild it. And, you know, some of that was, I've just always been fascinated by places like Detroit and like, mm -hmm you know, New York in the seventies and cities that just, you know, Memphis had its moment where it was just being abandoned. Right. And now it's, we were talking about Crosstown before we started here and where I live. And that's a place that's sort of this abandoned space that now is like one of the coolest, most active spaces in Memphis. And yeah. so I've always liked that stuff. So I, I don't know, that's how my brain works and somehow translates that into books. Well, I know so, we're all wondering out there, are you currently writing any? I, I am. I, I just, I, I finished a book during the pandemic. Um, and, um, my agent is it's published. So I live this, this, you know, like I could get my phone out right now and tell you every single thing that's happening on the daily Memphian, every transaction, every ad, every subscription, I could probably figure out who's on the site. If you're on there or you're not, like it's creepy how much I know about what's going on with the daily Memphian in real time with books. It's an archaic, slow, ridiculously frustrating process. So I've sent my, this manuscript, which took two and a half years to write, <clears throat> I probably started three and a half years ago, but basically two and a half, two, two and a half years to write. I'll send, I sent it to my agent a couple of months ago. She said, it'll take me a few months to get it. She emailed me yesterday and said, I'm, I'm starting looking forward to it. It'll take her, you know, it takes a while to read a book, right? I mean, it's just, if you're going to read it, it takes you a little while. Then we'll talk about publishers and whether we go back to the other publishers and then she'll start sending it. And if, if I get it picked up, it'll be a year, if not two years from now before it gets published. So, I mean, you think about it from idea to publishing is, and this has been true of all the books I've done is, you know, three or four years. And wow. it's just, 
it's it's an absurd way to live. <laughs> so, the, yeah. Well, the um, subject matter uh, seems to be of some of your your books, and I don't I don't know about the new one, the one you were just talking about, but to some degree, sort of gaze into the future. They they kind of like the 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 one about climate change, industrial flight. Yeah. Um, sort of future signs of the times. Yeah. And the, the next one is the same. It's kind of sort of a sequel or a prequel, whatever they decide to call it to city where we once lived. And it's about that. I mean, it's about it. And it sounds more hopeless and kind of dark. And I've been happy that reviews of the books have been that actually they're, they're kind of hopeful books. It's just, you know, I don't think you can be hopeful unless you own where we were. Right. I mean, yeah. you can't be hopeful about downtown unless you realize that downtown Memphis was, was really abused and pretty well abandoned back in the whatever seventies and eighties, like most frankly, American cities, but that doesn't, it's not just a hopeless story. It's a story about like, what do you do? How do you rebuild yourself and how do you remake yourself? And, and you know, and there's obviously no small amount of, of, uh, we talk about that a lot in the daily Memphian <clears throat> when I ran the the daily news before that. And certainly I'm behind the headlines. I mean, some of my favorite shows we've ever done on behind the headlines a bit about urban renewal, the medical district, downtown redevelopment, cool, you know, town square stuff here in, in Collierville. It doesn't matter where it's just sort of how do you make spaces and how people live and how people share their whatever their community is, however big or small it yeah. is. And so, so those kind of things, you know, kind of bleed into the the books <clears throat> as well. Wow. And then when you're, you have writers, obviously young writers that work for you, work with yeah. you. Yeah. Dale what, what, so yeah. what advice do you give them or any writer out there that's listening? What, what are some, some things that you would give them for advice? Um, I have one funny, the, the joke part of this is that because I'm of an age that I know lots of people whose kids are going to college and sometimes people, parents, you know, acquaintances, mine will email me, call me, text me, whatever, and say, Hey, Johnny or Jill is thinking about going to school and be a writer. Can you talk to them? And they'll go, yes. Do you want me to talk them out of it? Or do you want me to support them? And the answer is very. And then the same thing happens with journalism because people, you know, journalism has taken such a hit. And people say, my, my, my son, daughter wants to go be a journalist. Would you talk to them? And again, I'm like, do you want me to try to talk them out of it? Or do you want me to talk to them? And they go, well, and I think they've made up their mind. So I guess talk them, you know, just be supportive. Ah, I'm scared. Um, and what I say to them, though, is, you know, I mean, actually, it is a great um, if you're going to write, you're going to write and it's a very hard and difficult go and it's very slow moving and stressful and, and it takes an amazing level of, I mean, if you look at the successful writers in the world the, with some exception is people who just work for years and years and decades and decades on the journalism front. Um, I, I think it's a very high calling and I think it's really important work and, uh, it's why I, you know, agreed to and was very happy to be part of daily Memphian not to get rich and famous, but just because it was important that we have a, a, a local news source that's that's dedicated, that's in Memphis. And I, when I say Memphis, I mean the Memphis area. Just mm -hmm. I always mean it that way, not just because I'm, I'm here with you all. Um, that's based here, that knows the area, that has people who are not just dropping in, but are invested in in the communities they they cover and the 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 beats they cover. To those young writers, I mean, I think it's a high calling. I think it's. It's really hard work. I think it's um, it can be very stressful. You can you know if you're you you have to be ready for criticism. You have to know you're going to get uh, beat up. That not everyone's going to agree with you. Beat up on social media. Beat up <clears throat> verbally. Hopefully not ever um, uh, physically. Um, but I think it's a really important work, <clears throat> and and um, and it matters. You know, it really matters to people. Um, so.
Don't you think that writing um, from a journalistic point of view, not necessarily novels and creative writing like yeah, that, but sure. from journalistic point of view, I, I think is always going to is is always going to be a, a necessity you need to have if you want to be in journalism. I mean, just to be able to use social media and to be able to put things on a blog and a quick post or one thing, but to be able to take uh, uh, something and put it put it into writing into a context, yeah. you know, you have to have that basic fundamental of of presenting a story. Look, I, I mean, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I remember, you know, when blogs started coming along and social media started coming along, I mean, that's, I'm old enough. And and it is still the case that so much of that posting sharing is fundamentally a news article, a written news article might be a TV piece, but often it's a written news article, whether that's the New York times or it's the daily Memphian or yeah. it's whatever it is. It's someone saying, Look at this dumb thing <laughs> and here's why. Or look at this amazing thing and here's why. If you even look at TV still, and this has always been the case from local to to, to national, um, so much of what they do is talking about something that the New York Times, at the national level, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, whoever wrote and yelling about it or agreeing with it. But it starts with the written word still. Um so I, yeah, I'm obviously, I mean, I'm biased. I'm with you. I, and I love at the same time, I, I love that podcasting has gotten to be, it's a great way to connect with people and talk about these things. There's, there is really good TV, you know, news journalism that isn't about yelling and isn't sensational. Um, but I still, I'm with you that it fundamentally does come down to writing yeah. and, um, and that will be an essential part of it for as long as I can imagine. Yeah. And then, so tell us, how did that draw you? To start in Memphis, of all places. Uh, I mean, I had moved from Tacoma to, to Connecticut. I met um, uh, towards the end of being in college there, met a woman. Uh, we ultimately moved to New York. She was from Memphis. We got married. Marriage didn't work, but we're, she's still a very good friend, and, and we raised these wonderful kids together. So, and I, we were in New York about five years living in the city. It was really fun and then it was just really stressful and then it was just exhausting. And that I think I think, you know, when you live in the, the city, you either it's either you see people who are just like, yeah, I can't ever live anywhere else. I have to live in New York. And it's like, that's great. I don't have that bug. Like it is my my daughter goes to NYU. I'm up there as often as I can be. I love New York. It's my favorite city in the world. Big city in the world. Um, but I don't want to live there. And so I kind of fallen in love with Memphis through Blair, us visiting, we got married here and it was just like, I didn't want to go back to the Northwest. And I loved the, I don't know. I just loved the texture of the place. I mean, this was 25 plus years ago now. And the, the, just the, the Southernness of it was so new to me, the oldness. I mean, out West, everything's really, other than the mountains, everything's really new, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I loved and, and mm -hmm. I love the kind of diversity of the place in, in all ways, good and bad. And, you know, um, it, it, I found it to be a city that was kind of honest about itself, you know, that it, we got a lot of problems and we're going to talk about them versus other, like I'd grown up in the shadow of Seattle. Seattle kind of likes to pretend it doesn't have problems. It's just all up and happy and high tech and wealthy, but it has all kinds of problems. You know, right. Portland's the same way, you know, mm -hmm. all these West coast cities. So I just, I like the honesty and authenticity of the place, I guess. So, and it's, so it's it, I, now, I mean, I don't know. It's definitely my adopted home. I'm, I'm sure I plan to live here for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's great. When you first started or got involved with the daily Memphian yeah. and it was a uh, nonprofit mm -hmm. still is. Yes. Yep. 
And do you see it someday transitioning a little out of that? And and just yeah, how and why at first nonprofit, and then yeah. kind of where do you see it going? So so we just had our third anniversary. Um, so for me, it's really been about four years because behind the scenes, uh, a- Andy Cates, uh, now board chair, essentially my business partner in this, and and my friend of twenty years. Um, it, we started talking about journalism years and years before we launched. I was still running the daily news and the, the, the Memphis news and doing the show and Gannett or scripts, Gannett, you know, the commercial appeal was, was beginning to crater like all local papers are. Um, we would have, I've, I've been on a lot of nonprofit boards. I'd never run a nonprofit. Andy's been on even more boards and done more fundraising and more sort of support of, of nonprofits. We just couldn't make the math work to, to say, hey, we, this is going to take millions of dollars to get started. We're going to lose money for a few years. We're going to be a classic startup. We got to we got to burn money to make money, and to go and and we ultimately said, you know, we got to raise close to seven million dollars to launch to do it right. And um, he, he we I remember we went through all these budget models, and I was going through Excel, and I, and I, and we said, well, wait, let's keep let's keep one more look at can we make this for profit? So I spend a day and I do all this stuff and I send it to him and we talk and we're on the phone and we talk about 20 times a day back then. We only talk about 10 times a day now. And, <laughs> and it showed a return on investment and it showed a reasonable, you know, like ROI and it, it made sense as an investment. And he goes, all right. And we kind of talk for a few minutes. He goes, all right, but can, I mean, are these numbers real? And I go, well, Andy, I can make a spreadsheet say anything. <laughs> I sort of laughed. And I go, and I wasn't trying to trick him. I was just like, that is the rosiest the for-profit scenario. And it's, it doesn't leave a lot of room. And if we got to go and look at, if I got to look at you and say, will you, you know, invest X thousand or million dollars with me? And it's going to be a reasonable rate of return over time. That's very different than saying, Hey, will you donate and Mm. invest in this as a civic endeavor that we, that, that no matter what we do, we'll do really good work with your money and we'll be good stewards of it. And we do think also that we can become sustainable based on subscriptions and advertising and sponsorship. So we don't run it. I mean, you know, we always sort of joke that it's a nonprofit that we run as a business because we want to get away from having to constantly fundraise. We just, Mm -hmm. and so we think by the end of year five, we can be sustainable and based on subscriptions, based on advertising and sponsorships, we may always raise a certain amount of money. We do a lot of free programs. We're free in all the schools in Shelby County, public, private charter, everything. We're free in all the libraries. We're free. If anybody's out there and works with a nonprofit that has people who can't or shouldn't have to pay for local news, email me, call me, and we'll probably, we don't have a high bar of qualification. We just, we want to give the news away for free to everyone who can't or shouldn't pay for it while we charge everybody who can pay for it. And again, that free stuff may always have to be a little bit underwritten by by philanthropy and fundraising, but the bulk ninety percent of the budget we think by by end of year five will be um, pay for itself. So it was yeah. a long way of getting into your answer. And again, the the nice thing is we'll have raised probably eight million, eight and a half million dollars in in philanthropic dollars by the time we get to sustainability. We don't have this expectation. We have to pay all these investors back. They understand yeah. why they invested in this. It's a civic endeavor. Um, it's not, uh, uh, something where, you know, we got to start cutting people or we got to start cutting back on news or we got to start doing things to, to make a, a reasonable rate of return. And again, I say that as someone who's never run a nonprofit before, who is a capitalist, I just think this business particularly is a really bad one. And sadly, it's the one I latched myself to many, many years ago. I should have stayed in construction with my stepbrother. <laughs> is that, I mean, is that unique to 
media? Like, does that set you guys apart from media in the industry? Being a nonprofit? Yeah. Um, it, we are unique in that we are probably, we're essentially the biggest of, we're the biggest single market, like uh, local news site. I still call us a newspaper, even though we don't print. Um, there are a couple of statewide ones that are bigger. The Texas Tribune is sort of the grandfather, grandmother of all this. Uh, Cal Matters is a statewide um, online site that probably has a newsroom of 50. We have a newsroom of approaching 40. Um, there are a couple that are bigger that have bigger missions. But in terms of being in a city and just covering the city, yeah. we're the biggest, which was not our intention. It's just this was the size we thought we needed to cover the whole of Memphis. And we still, we'd love to have about five more people. Um, there are, so in that sense, we're, we're an anomaly. There are a lot of nonprofit news sites um, and they're more and more launching. It's a big trend right now. You've had the, the Philly Inquirer, big 100, 200 year old paper, essentially went nonprofit a few years ago. It's a little bit of a complicated structure. The Salt Lake Tribune went nonprofit in the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, there's likelihood that um, there's another one that just big city one that went nonprofit. Um, it's because it's such a bad business. Mm -hmm. There are then different approaches. So um, a lot of places I mentioned like Texas Tribune, Texas Tribune, which is great work, is amazing, you know, um, statewide kind of state politics focused um, news site, they, part of their mission is to be free. They have no paywall. They do not charge anyone for access to the content. They have a $10 million budget and they raise about $10 million a year to pay for that. Well, I guess you can do that in Austin or Texas when you're statewide, but you know, we're a $5 million budget. We're not going to raise $5 million a year philanthropically. We probably could, but then we're a drain on the philanthropic community. Yeah. And that's dollars to some degree that don't go to things that literally yeah. can't pay for yeah. themselves. Homelessness can't pay for itself by right. definition. Free and open parks. I used to be on the board of the Open Park Conservancy. By definition, it really can't generate very much revenue. It's a free and open park, you know, food banks. And there's a lot of, non, you know, child early childhood development. We didn't want to be a drain on that. And so, again, for us, we are a bit anomalous in that we have a paywall. We charge for subscriptions. We run it like a business. A lot of the nonprofit news sites, local ones, and there are more and more every day, which is great from a journalistic point of view. Most of them are largely, if not entirely, donation-based, yeah. which is it's just, again, I'm not being critical of that. It's just they're much, they tend to be much smaller. And I just, I don't know how you sustain a full-blown newsroom that way. Yeah. So- that's a great model, though, because it really feels like the community can feel like they're giving back to the community yeah. just by subscribing. Yeah. To get. Yeah. Them, yeah. We, we hope so. I mean, that in, in you know, Memphis, we all know I mean, Memphis, again, the broadest sense is a big, small town. I mean, mm -hmm. so people I see people in the grocery store and they ask me about a story and how in the ninth <laughs> paragraph we got this thing. And I'm like, that is really a thoughtful <laughs> comment. I really appreciate that. I'm just trying to get some milk. Um, but I, you know, but I think that that's what's part of what's important is that it does feel like the community's paper yeah. and that um, I actually, I love when people, even when they're being critical, I, I always appreciate it. I try to respond to everybody who emails me or calls me because I think it is, like you said, it's a community asset in the end. Yeah. What is, what's the biggest challenge that you have in the media world right now? And where, um, do you, where do you see that? Where do you see it going? I mean, it, it, we're still at a place where, I mean, we're, we're – Local news, particularly national news as well, newspapers made a just an absolute fatal decision 15, 20 years ago. They gave, they started to give away all their content for free. So a whole generation of people grew up expecting news to be free. I mean, um, when we launched, and I don't like to pick on the commercial people, I, I, because I, I have great respect for the journalists who work over there. I have 
major issues with their their corporate um, ownership. But but when we launched in 2018, the CA after having a having a paywall sort of for a decade had something like 2,000 subscribers, paying subscribers. I mean, that's how's that possible? You know, the, after a decade, well, they didn't make, they didn't take it seriously. And the truth was, all local news, the New York Times, everybody but the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times basically gave their news away for 10 or 15 years. And it, not surprisingly, didn't work that well, you know? And uh, it, that still is a challenge. I think more and more people are used to that. New York Times was the first Washington Post followed. Now all these different national publications, they, are, they have paywalls up. Um, more and more local sites have paywalls up and they, you know, we charge a real rate. We don't do heavy discounting. I mean, you're going to pay 99 a year or 13, 14 bucks a month. And we don't really discount from there because it costs a lot to do this. There's still just a lot of people like, well, wait, why, why do I have to pay for this? Well, I mean, I paid for the New York. When I lived in New York, I paid for the New York Times every day. It was 50 cents. I get on the subway. I mean, I've done the math before. And, I mean, I think I, I estimated that I paid about $300 a year, single copy for whatever reason, never had home delivery. So I just buy it and I buy the Sunday Times. I buy it almost every day. I was a big New York Times guy. And then I moved to Memphis and I get home delivery, I think just Sundays. And that was almost 300 bucks. And I got that. And then there was a point in time when I could get it for free on my computer. And I didn't like it as much. But I was like, free versus 300 bucks a year. I kind of think I'm going to take free. And so I stopped my subscription. When they finally put their paywall up, a true paywall, really kind of, you can't read the New York Times without paying. It's about $300. And so it's like the whole, it's ridiculous. Like all those years that I didn't pay while simultaneously the Wall Street Journal, which has never done the kind of cutting that the other other papers have done, they always charge and I've always paid for it. So I, I think that is a lot. I mean, that's a, such a, a mental shift for people. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to pay for news? Yeah. Why shouldn't it be free? It was always free. Well, it wasn't. It was an anomaly of the last 10 or 15 years. So, yeah. Wow. Um, the life span of news platforms today can change so fast. Yeah. 10, 20, 30 years ago, the, the, the newspapers evolving, however they chose to, was very, very slow and grinding. Yeah. But today, your business can change really, really fast. Right. Right. So what, what, what are you looking ahead? Where are you trying to position yourself to be for the next evolution of news or the next evolution of uh, your business? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is we one is we we always have to keep our fundamentals and our, our basics in place. Good journalism, high integrity, independence, um, uh, all those things don't change. It's like what we're saying about the written word. That stuff doesn't change. Um, we, we, we do some podcasts and they do fine and they're, they're kind of reach people in a different way. We will probably start doing a little bit more video. Um, I'm less convinced that video for us will introduce, you know, get new and different audiences, but it, there's a, there's a place for it. Um, one thing is again, post COVID we'll get back to in-person events. I mean, simple things like one of the first in-person events I did, I think as COVID, I think it was right after I got vaccinated, you were nice enough to have me to what a a monthly meeting, you know? Yes. And it's just so funny to be around people and you realize, Oh my God, you get all this feedback and people kind of nicely cornered me afterward. And you know, they had praise and complaints and it was great. You don't get that Mm. on social media. You don't get that by email. You don't get that by text. And so I think some things are counter to what your question was. Like the next things are 
let's not lose track of the basics and the kind of fundamentals that that help us stay connected to the community and so on. Um, I, I think there, I, I th- you know, there's just so much with social media that we try to keep up with. It changes so quickly. It's a big driver of traffic and it it's hard to stay on top of. And, you know, so where we go with that and how we best utilize those platforms to drive people to Daily Memphian is a constant challenge. And there'll be another, you know, we don't do anything on TikTok right now just because we had to pick and choose. We probably should do more on TikTok to get younger readers into the daily Memphian. There's other platforms that we should be using that we're not. Um, I think those are some of the biggest things um, um, in terms of distribution and traffic and how, you know, how we get people to, to our site. Yeah. When you, when you were at our uh, meeting back earlier this year, I think it was, as you said, the virus was uh, obviously still very much around, but it was beginning to, the earliest of early yeah. signs of tapering down. The vaccine had just come right. out. Um, someone in our audience asked you, "What what's the next big story? And on that day, you said, the next big story will be that in a few months down the road in the summer, they'll be giving you gift cards at malls to get you Did to, I take, say that? to take a vaccine. For the win! <laughs> what a horrible thing to be right about. <laughs> you did say that. Wow. And I, I funny. it stuck out to me. It was uh, just an interesting observation because, listen, at that moment, that was in late February. <laughs> right. At that moment, all we could see was a few, just barely into the future, Let's get vaccinated and try to get through this. Yeah. And you said that, and darned if you know four yeah. months later that's we not that we're wall. giving away cars. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. What's the next big headline? <laughs> what's the next? Big- I think. Well, I think on COVID, I think the mandates. I mean, as the federal mandates really kick in, and how that you know, what does FedEx do? What does AutoZone do? What are the big employers? And but even maybe those will be bigger headlines. But what do the midsize banks do? What are the what are the midsize um, real estate firms do what, you know, the, 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 the people who are at maybe a hundred to 200 employees, cause the threshold for the federal mandates to either vaccinate or test and they're complicated, but it's, <clears throat> it's going to hit a lot of people, a lot of employers and how do they handle it? You can see it now with the airlines are making up, you know, different airlines nationally are handling things differently. Um, we at daily Memphian, we, I finally just got fed up and we, we had, we knew we had 85, 90% compliance but I was like, you know, we're writing about this every day. We're 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 pro science, which means we're pro vaccine for for virtually all people. I mean, there's some exceptions, and that's fine. Um, and we have people out, or by definition, I mean, our virtually everyone in our office is a reporter who's out talking to people, or they're a salesperson, or a marketing person, or they're whatever I am. So I said, we got everyone. If you got to get a vaccine to be employed, and 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 one of the fascinating things about it was um, it was it was five or six people. Um, all of them got vaccinated. There was no drama. There was no, no one, no, I mean, if there was drama, they didn't share it with me, yeah. and, but there really wasn't any drama. It was, and it was a, a mix of ages and male and female and black and white. And, and it was just people who just needed that little nudge to get it done. And I think that will be a really interesting thing over the next, you know, I, uh, you know, couple months as those mandates really kick in, but it certainly over the next six months, eight months, I mean, where employers and organizations go with with vaccine. I think the medium and long-term story, and I think we did talk about this at, when you were nice enough to have me at the, the meeting, is the educational impact. I mean, I think the learning loss 
um, for kids is that mm. shows up in the testing and it showed up in the first round of tests yeah. at all schools, yeah. all levels. It was pretty brutal, but I, I mean, the tests are one thing. I think that's educating kids is hard at, at the best of schools with the greatest resources. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, and not all of our schools in the area have the, the best resources and the most money. And so I think the long-term impact of that, and you know, you see it, there's a lot of speculation. That's part of the reason that juvenile crime is way up. I mean, how all that stuff plays out and how we get, how we, these kind of lost kids, how do we get them back in? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's a real big challenge and it's a national challenge. You know, it, it happened everywhere. So. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Final question. Yeah. We can feel your passion and hear it. <laughs> it's just the uh, coffee. Well, I had so much <laughs> coffee this morning. What, what's your favorite thing about your job and what you do? Um... Favorite thing, um, I, uh, I th part of it, honestly, is doing stuff like this. I love to get out and talk to people. It's mm -hmm. really nice. I love to get feedback, good and bad. Um, and I, I, I love the the that we're, you know, we do all this work and we hit send on it or we hit publish on it, and then to to hear feedback on it. And again, that includes negative feedback, irrational, like angry stuff. I can live without that. But sometimes the criticism, it's. Criticism is not a bad word and criticism is not a bad thing. It's, it's part being critical is part of what makes us smarter, makes us more effective. And I, so I like being out especially, and maybe that's a post COVID thing too, is just to be out and hear from people about daily Memphian and, and what they want to hear more of what they want to hear less of and all that kind of stuff. That, that to me is very fun with the caveat that I get way too much credit, you know, um, people are like, Oh, you, you did this thing. And it's like, no, 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 there's just a lot of us doing this thing, you know? So, but I, I get to be out a lot and that's, that's a fun thing. Yeah. Well, we can definitely tell. Yeah. Well, thank, well, thank you yeah. for uh, absolutely. Being Thanks on for the having show. me. We we love the Daily Memphian. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you. Y'all are doing a great job. Yeah. Um, it's it's just literally a daily, uh, throughout the day source of of news and updates. Yeah. You got mm -hmm. an A team of folks working yeah. over there. Yeah. No, we we do. We really have and great great people. So, so hats off to you for a great staff. And uh, just thanks for being here. And yeah. we appreciate everything you do for the community. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to Corporate Cornucopia. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, My Town Roofing. Replacing your roof shouldn't be a hassle. It should be a smooth process done in a timely manner and, most importantly, at a reasonable price. My Town Roofers has thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out at MyTownRoofing.com. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, head on over to www.CollierVilleChamber.com to access our notes, join the conversation, or leave a good review. <laughs>